This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I have a very, very bookish show for you today. Meg Keneally, who co-authored the first four books of the Montserrat series with her dad, Tom Keneally, has now launched her first solo novel. And it is a true epic. Fled tells the story of Jenny Trelawney, a highway robot transported to Australia who does the seemingly impossible. She escapes from her colonial prison to Timor before her luck runs out. If this story sounds familiar, it's because Jenny Trelawney's tale draws heavily from the real-life exploits of Mary Bryant, a life that has fascinated historians, writers and filmmakers without really revealing that much about the interior life of the woman herself, about whom very little is known. Meg Keneally joins me later in the hour to discuss Fled and the extraordinary life of Mary Bryant that informs it but soon. Author and editor Nicola Redhouse's incredible new book, Unlike the Heart, uses her visceral experiences of new motherhood to set off on a journey through the mind and the way it shapes us from childhood on. A memoir and psychological journey that is powerful and thought-provoking. Nicola joins me soon. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to a Backstory on 3RRR. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Now, Nicola Redhouse's experience of new parenthood led her down a path to exploring the mind, how it develops and how psychoanalytic theory was at the very root of her existence in more ways than one. This is all part of Nicola's extraordinary memoir, Unlike the Heart, a memoir of brain and mind. And Nicola joins me now to discuss it. Nicola, welcome to Backstory. Thank you for having me. It's such an interesting book and I I do sort of almost want to start by talking about what sort of compelled it and the, the narrative that that drives it but also the title really intrigues me because mm. I think a few people are going to go brain and mind um, mm. don't we think of them as synonymous maybe yep. that's also a good place to start uh, uh, you're making a distinction there and there's yeah. a very good reason behind it yeah well um so I suppose the um narrative drive of the book um was my postnatal experience and the intense postnatal anxiety that I experienced after both my children um and what that threw me into was this weird place you know we there's a long history of um psychiatry and medicine um kind of um sparring in a way for the territory of um the psyche you know um you know, you don't. Ha- you, you can look at the history of the Diagnostic Statistic Manual ch- to see that at work, and how um, you know psychoanalytic influence, which looks at um, our emotional makeup, has come into um, conflict with the medical approach, which um, says, to some extent, um, you know, we have a you have a. Um, a, a condition of the the brain, um, and there's a you know there's a pill for that basically. So my postnatal experience threw me into the depths of that um, tension because um, while I've been brought up with psychoanalytic thinking around me, my father's a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, um, and I had been in analysis for years. So I'd always taken an approach that my emotional um, 
experience was guided by my um, sort of life experience, my feelings. Um, but when you find yourself in postnatal distress um, in in the medical fraternity, you know, you, you go to your GP, um, the approach that's taken is quite um, sort of biological, you know, your experience. Well, I mean, there is a, a de- you know, th- there's certainly psychology acknowledged. I, I shouldn't overlook that. The um, midwives and the obstetricians will always take note of your psycholo- you know, psychological makeup. But the um, guidelines for treatment are very, you know, um, focused on medication and the hormonal changes that you're going through. And so that really threw me into the depths of... Um, that historical tension and that's what the title's about the reference to unlike the heart is a reference to the fact that the brain is um a, there's a line in the book where i talk about how the brain is unlike any other organ in the body and specifically i say unlike the heart um in that it is dynamic it changes with our history with our present lived moment what i love so much about this book is it, it contextualizes uh, both psychoanalytic theory and you know and i guess you know these more kind of materialist ways of thinking about mm. the brain very much in this extremely like visceral and human experience which is you know a, an almost animal experience or an mm. animal not almost mm. an animal experience mm. of giving birth mm. and Uh, it's just visceral in your description you know your descriptions of your experience of uh, new parenthood um, how that physically changes you and Mm. your entire perception of the world but in a way that is incredibly compelling for readers Um, I've you know I'm not a parent but I have read a lot of books covering this topic and this was this cuts through because I think you really do frame it in terms of you know how your mind is operating and how it's how Mm. you your entire perception has suddenly shifted Mm. it's very beautifully written Thank you. As well, I have to say. But what was so interesting um, for me right at the start was that you introduce your experience of new parenthood and then also uh, admit that your parents, in fact, met through a shared love of Freud. And I thought that is such an amazing starting point for talking about how um, a birth um, has really affected your way of looking at the brain and then talking about the fact that your parents literally met through yeah. um, a shared love of the kind of you yeah. know originator of psychoanalytic yeah theory. Well, well they didn't meet through that they well, soon discovered it upon my father ah. literally falling over my mother at the beach um he, she was in a, among a group of girls who were holidaying and um he was among a group of high school boys who were holiday holidaying and they got chatting and very soon they established that they were both very interested in um a freudian theory my mother had come across it through um, reading a um, theorist at the time who was, this was all in South Africa, um, the theorist was named Wolf Sachs and he'd written an analysis of, um, well, a number of things, but the, the one that she was interested in was his analysis of Hamlet, um, which had taken a psychoanalytic um, approach in understanding Hamlet's um, dilemma in one in in not being able to carry through avenging his father. So my mother had been um, deeply into that at, at school um, and my father was just entering university and studying psychology and it wasn't um, popular. Freudian thinking was going out of fashion at the time. It was all behaviourism and Skinner and um, that kind of thing. So it wasn't unusual um, uh, intellectual passion and it certainly united them. It's a really interesting place to start for the very obvious reasons of tell us about your childhood. Absolutely. Which, um, but what is really fascinating as well is, you know, uh, I mean, Freud 
himself was someone who also thought a lot about neuroscience and that mm. that's a history that's kind of not discussed mm-hmm. as much I guess because there was this schism between mm. those things I think what's really interesting is also how you very much wind in your own kind of gradually I guess unraveling mental state um, through you know parenthood but then finding a new way of describing the experiences mm. Do, how much of this actually kind of ran through your mind while you were going through the experiences that you describe? How much of framing things in these terms helped you to cope with what you were going through? Well, in the throes of my um, worst and lengthiest period of postnatal anxiety, which was probably the six months after my first son was born, um, I wasn't thinking about any of this. Um, I mean, I was really in a very... uh, you know, a, a state of crisis, um, just trying to kind of get through every day. And um, it was only afterwards, um, sort of even before I fell pregnant with my second son and had a second bout of the same thing, but not not um, as lengthy, um, I wasn't thinking of these intellectual questions. Um, I, I certainly was constantly driven by a kind of psychoanalytic thinking in thinking about what I was going through, both because I was still in analysis at the time and because that's how I, I think, because of, I have been surrounded by that since I was a child. Um, but the intellectual questions, the conundrum about the mind, body, the questions about whether I should be taking a medical approach or a, a emotional or psychoanalytic approach, that came about... Um, and that, I guess, is the point of the second half of the book, when my sister, who is a, a very um, brilliantly um, passionate evidence-based scientist, uh, science researcher, um, and has, obviously has the same mother and father as me, um, said to me one day when I sort of expressed to her that I felt that I was beginning to understand the emotional origins of what had happened to me and that I thought psychoanalytic work had really helped me, she looked at me sort of quite um, cuttingly, <laughs> spoke to me quite cuttingly anyway, and said... Um, you know, that psychoanalytic theory is a pseudoscience. And um, that was a massive bombshell for me. Um, I wanted to defend my father. I wanted to defend my upbringing. Um, But I was really genuinely interested in what she was saying as well because what she was essentially saying is... um, you know, we can't falsify the claims of, of psychoanalytic work. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author Nicola Redhouse about her book, Unlike the Heart, which is a journey into both uh, new parenthood, but also and more completely psychoanalytic theory and also, um, I guess, the other ways of looking at the brain that are deemed, you know, much more current, <laughs> let's just say. What, what I love about this, and I really want to approach it, um, some of the writing of this book, because you're, you, you know, a lot of your professional experience has been as an editor yep. uh, and I think that this is one of the most tightly spun books uh, that I've read in, in recent times. It really is unassailably well written um, and I do wonder at some of the decisions that you've made in how you've wound things together because there is a kind of seamless interweaving of you know your experience and, and mm. the ideas um, that, that you generate. Um, mm. So I want to I ask you how you went about writing this. Did you in fact write the memoir components um, separately and then wind them in? Mm. How did you go about doing it? I really struggled um, with the structural um, shape of it for a long time. Um, I had no idea how I was going to do it. I spent it, I, I spent three years writing it, um, and I think for at least a year of that time somewhere in there, I was just staring at a screen, cleaning the grout on tiles, you know, refolding the washing um, and not being able to see a way through. I didn't, I, I couldn't see how to 
sort of intertwine the strands. Um, and I was using that um, program that a lot of people use, Scrivener, um, which I didn't use to its uh, best ability. I think it's quite useful for people um, beyond anything that I did with it. But the way it helped me was that I could visually see folders um, with the strands and I could move them around and then remove them back quite easily. That's one of the tools that you can use with it. Um, so I did try a number of different things with that. Um, and I had a number of excellent astute readers um, who at various points read things and said, well, no, that needs to happen at this point. And then I just switched things around and something clicked. Um, funnily enough, the big breakthrough I had um, where I really felt I don't know how to move this forward and how to bring them together. Um, I was laughing the other day and saying, I think that writers should have writers groups, not with other writers, but with people in other trades and industries. You know, um, and I, someone was telling me that they're... They, they're um, architect partner had helped them work out the structure of their book <laughs> so my husband who is not in the least in the field of creative writing um has quite a logical brain and i just articulated to him one night what this problem was that i was having and he just turned around and said well it's kind of obvious you just put that there and that there <laughs> and, and wham it was fixed so um it was it was a process and a struggle but um it's very writing's really organic for me so i never it's it i just think it takes that time and that fiddling and that working it out i was never not going to have well when i first started with my idea for the book it was never going to have a personal story at all mm-hmm. i hadn't even connected my postnatal experience with what i explored it was going to be about whether we have um, scientific evidence for freud's theory of the mind when i realized that was part of my personal story and part of my postnatal story that's when i f- faced that structural problem it's sort of a really interesting thing because in a way creating a book is that is a kind of act of, of you know trying to create some sense of of sense yeah. out of a a deeply inherently kind of a logical mm. thing that's life which is mm. just you know it isn't something that is managed mm-hmm. um in these these ways or in these boundaries um but the other thing that i really thought about was uh you know i became quite interested in freud myself not so much uh because i thought his theories held Mm. you know much for me in terms of um you know my belief in them or Mm. my investment in them but more because of his writing Mm. he was a beautiful writer and his writing gave away a lot about his own life he also was the Shakespeare of the mind Mm. he literally created the language that we use for Mm. the unconscious I feel as though that very much is reflected in terms of your I guess resonance with those ideas as well as there being the things that you have inherited from your parents yeah um which is a wonderful other layer to this book thank you (laughs) yeah I mean Freud um I think one of the things he struggled with was that he actually said uh, um at one point that um he didn't think that he would be respected in the scientific community because his uh case studies had the, the the air of novels um so you know there's something inherently novelistic about um the story of not only just the story of people's lives but their their the story of their emotional experience and the inevitable analysis that comes into that when you're working both with poetic language and with psychoanalytic theory um there's always sort of two layers happening and that's what gives it that real kind of literary resonance i think and that i think that does come through in his certainly in his case studies yeah well nicola this is just a, a really extraordinary book i feel like i want to spend more time with it i've very much encourage people to do so it's not it's not a book like any I've really read before in that you know you really are a guest playing in that space that people are deeply interested in which is the brain and the mind mm. and and the relationship um, that we have to it in society and um, how we look at things but also a very deeply 
personal moving experience that you've had um, with New Parenthood. Uh, I am really wondering where one goes from here as a writer. <laughs> yeah. are, are you working on more nonfiction? Because I truly think you handle it in this incredibly, um, you know, robust way that's very impressive. Thank you. Yeah, I am really um, uh, energised by... Um, investigating things outside of myself um and that does seem to be the point that I'm continuing on at the moment I'm starting my second book but I'm not near the point of writing I'm just at the point of research and again it does seem to be like I have that real invigoration in learning about something new um and reading the research papers and everything but I don't know it could end up being a novel (laughs) I do write you know I've had a lot of um short stories published and that was sort of my primary interest as a writer was fiction. Um, So I'm not sure at this point. I'm just enjoying the research process. Um, Who knows? I also have to say, and I know um, we shouldn't necessarily invest in such things, but you do have uh, cover blurbs from um, Helen Garner and Siri Hustford, um, (laughs) who are both some giants in literary circles there. And I know Helen Garner very rarely puffs books these days. So that is... um, Thank you, yeah. It's very deserved, I have to say. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, I was obviously thrilled. Um, Siri Hustford has a deep interest in um, psychoanalysis and neuropsychoanalysis, which is one of the theories that I go into in depth and one of the subjects that I interview is the professor at the head of that. So she was quite, you know, very interested in it and I'm just, you know, obviously absolutely thrilled to have both her and Helen Garner's quotes on there. Well, Nicola Redhouse, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. That was Nicola Redhouse discussing her book, Unlike the Heart, a memoir of brain and mind, out now with UQP. Up next, Meg Keneally joins me to talk about Fled, a novel, her first solo effort, based on the truly epic life of highway robber and famous escapee convict, Mary Bryant. That's all coming up on Backstory. Three Triple R. Now, in late 18th century Britain, life was tough and young Jenny Trelawney, bereft and poverty-stricken, has had to eke out survival in the woods, robbing unwary travellers to get by. This life of petty crime sees her deported to the colonies. But her story doesn't end there. Far from settling down to her fate, Jenny risks it all and makes one of the few successful escapes to Timor before her luck runs out. This is the story of Meg Keneally's new novel, Fled, her first solo effort after writing four books in the Montserrat series with Father Tom Keneally. And Jenny's fictional story draws heavily on the real-life exploits of Mary Bryant, whose daring escape has captured the imagination of many, though without much direct insight into the interior life of the woman herself. Meg Keneally joins me on the line now to talk about her book, why she decided to fictionalise this truly epic life, and the art of writing historical fiction. Meg, welcome to Backstory. Thanks for having me, Mel. Now, this is quite an extraordinary first solo effort, although you are a very well-heeled historical fiction writer. I just want to address the story itself to begin with, because this is, as I indicated, genuinely an epic in terms of, you know, the the kind of breadth of what the character travels. For her time, she is beyond extraordinarily well-travelled as a woman, although Mm. through the worst kind of luck you could imagine. And her story washes up somewhere, 
you know, you unexpected. You just don't expect yes. where she ends up. So tell me a little bit about this book that you've written. Uh, well, I've always been fascinated by the story of Mary Bryant because um, we don't often hear female voices in history, at least not as often as we hear male ones, and particularly when those voices were illiterate, so they didn't leave behind any, for example, any um, letters, any journals, anything like that. Um, so the risks that she took and the courage it must have taken to uh, nick an open boat, six metre open boat and sail it 5,000 kilometres through incredibly rough seas has always fascinated me. And when I started digging a bit deeper, you know, I started looking at some of the nuances like, for example, why why, why would she put her children at risk? Because she had her children tied to a bench beside her. What made her feel that this was her only chance of survival. Why was she the only woman on the boat? Could it be that she was one of the drivers behind it, which I believe she was for various reasons. So this story just sort of wrapped around my mind and when um, friends started avoiding me because they didn't want to hear any more about it, I thought it was probably time to exercise the ghost and write it. <laughs> Look, it's, it is amazing and you do talk a lot at the end about um, the comparisons between the real life Mary Bryant and Jenny Trelawney and and the decisions that you've made um, to fictionalise. But the very best Mm. decision is literally the one that you've just kind of expressed, which is that because uh, Mary was illiterate and we didn't get to see Mm. her interior monologue, um, you really wanted to give her that interior life, um, but without kind of making presumptions um, of, you know, a non-historically accurate nature. And thus, um, you've created this this new character who is very, very heavily based uh, on Mary. Um, mm-hmm. Jenny's an, an extraordinarily interesting woman as well, because she's kind of really you know her her life experiences are one can only describe them as genuinely traumatic but she seems to be a woman of action is that what you were thinking when you were writing her because her choices historically at least the accounts that um that that i've read or that that are popularized seem very different Mm. from the kinds of crimes that other women of her period were committing well, that's right. And I mean, while we can't know what she thought and felt and believed and so on, which is why I felt I had to create this avatar for her, I think it's probably fair to say, based on the historical record, that she was no shrinking violet. That she was a fairly, you know, a strong-willed uh, woman. And while a lot of people, you know, it's the cliche that the convict was transported for stealing a loaf of bread to feed their starving family, um, the reason it's a cliche is that that happened a lot and the majority of convicts on the First Fleet were petty thieves. Mary wasn't. She was a violent criminal. She and three other girls, had, uh, two other girls rather, had set upon a woman on the ferry road from um, from Plymouth and and basically, you know, attacked her and, and, and robbed her. And for that, she could easily have been hanged. And, but there was no consistency in sentencing at the time. So instead, she was transported. Um, so, it, you know, as you say, some of the choices she made were not the choices that her contemporaries would have made. I think she was probably a very intelligent, very resourceful, very opportunistic uh, woman and most First of all, a survivor, because to survive that journey is uh, just up there with, as far as I'm concerned, up there with Shackleton as a survival story. It, it is 
It is quite extraordinary and you really do go into a lot of detail about her experiences, you know, both her time uh, in the woods and, you know, obviously her criminal behaviour there. Um, but then, you know, the the experience of travelling out to Australia on the Charlotte, um, what happened the horrific things that happened to women when they yeah, landed absolutely. here um, and then the mm. choice the really quite you know I guess as you say opportunistic decisions she made um, to kind of connect up with particular men in her life before doing this incredible journey and you know I don't think uh you know because it is in this historical record it's giving away too much to say that uh she does end up back where she started um which she does which is just not a story that you really ever hear about when it comes to convict convicts at all um but but there is a question i wanted to ask and that is literally about the the writing that you have um you've done because you've drawn quite a lot on the historical record and you've tried to create a a character and a language that's of that time how do you do that as a historical writer what choices do you make uh to make the reader feel like they're in that period of history which is you know at the start the late 18 uh, late 18th century um, mm-hmm. and what choices do you make linguistically to do that well yeah it's it's a real balance because you do want to uh, give people a sense that they are not this isn't Kansas anymore you know this is not the modern modern age any anymore people do speak differently etc but if you have people speak the way they actually did it would probably be inaccessible uh people wouldn't be able to uh, uh to understand it so linguistically i've tried to uh give the different characters a little bit of a flavor of what they actually would have sounded like there's jenny's cornish there's the officers sort of more clipped english there's the east london um accent of some of the thieves and so on but i think as well the, the one of the best ways to make people to draw people into a time and place is to concentrate on what the world would have looked like to them what they would have seen smelled heard worn all of that kind of minute detail that you don't necessarily get taught about in history class um but that you know formed such so much a part of the fabric of daily life for people in the past things like you know whenever i came across a detail i'd latch onto it and there was one uh, convict who wrote a letter back home who mentioned for example that some of the convict huts had lattices made out of twigs so you put that sort of thing in so that people get a sense of how people actually lived on a day-to-day basis uh how ordinary people lived, which wasn't something that people at the time felt was worth recording but of course which we're all desperate to know about now if you just join us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author Meg Keneally about her book Fled, a novel, her first solo effort, uh, and one that's very heavily based on the incredible, truly incredible life of Mary Bryant, a convict who did the truly unthinkable and escaped from her island prison, this island of Australia as we now know it. Um, Amazing.
I want to know a little bit about uh, how you did the historical uh, research that actually led to you getting those incredible details that you've just mentioned, because it, this really does feel like there's a lot of heft behind it. You've you've referenced that certainly at the end when you talk about how you've shifted the historical detail. And of course, you are a very well experienced now author of historical fiction. So how do you go about researching a book like this? Well, you, you stand on the shoulders of giants in terms of uh, the historians that you read, people like Grace Caskins, who wrote a fantastic book called The Colony, uh, Inga Clendinen, who wrote a terrific book called Dancing with Strangers, which is about first contact between the colonisers and the uh, Indigenous people. Um, so, uh, you know, all of those kind of books are absolutely crucial. But what you really, really need more than anything else is a primary source. In other words, the account of somebody who was actually there. And fortunately for anyone writing about the First Fleet, it was considered at the time to be as exotic as travelling to Mars. So all of the officers had publishing deals. So uh, so they had all published their, uh, their, their, their journals and their recollections. So I was able to trawl through all of those. Uh, there are various, as I said, letters that went backwards and forwards from um, from convicts, also, uh, you know, official letters and that sort of thing. So that was what I really relied on, um, both modern historians who have done the incredible job of interpreting that period, but also uh, really important to go to the source as well. And the, probably the most, the single most important document I looked at was a thing called the Martin Memorandums, which was the account of James Martin, one of the people who was on the boat. It's the only first-hand account of the voyage, and it's only because of him that we know where they went. Um, I, I wanted to really uh, round out our conversation about your amazing novel, um, an epic following uh, a character very heavily based on Mary Bryant, an Escobie mm-hmm. convict of some repute. Um, I by talking about one of the things that really heavily features in this book and that is the ocean the sea uh, your descriptions of it are really very engaging you obviously you know have you know a strong sense of what those things might felt like and I did notice in your bio that you are somehow as well as all the many other things that you do and have done a part-time scuba diving instructor so I'm really (laughs) compelled to ask a bit about these descriptions of the sea because they you know not only form a big part of the cover but the book itself yeah, I, I've always been absolutely obsessed with the ocean, in love with it, terrified by it, all of those things. Um, and uh, I, I, I do think having been, having spent a decent amount of time on the ocean, did definitely help me write those scenes. Um, I have uh, been on a sm- in, a, in, a, in a small boat on a rather cranky sea and gotten bounced around, uh, not nearly to the extent that Mary and her party. Uh, would have been bounced around, but enough to give me a sense of it, enough to let me know what it's like, for example, to have a boat climb up a wave and then have the wave disappear underneath you and come crashing down and that sort of thing. So um, uh, I think it's it was one of the things that attracted me to the story in the first place, just the sheer audaciousness of it as a, as a maritime venture. And to put it into perspective, it wasn't that much shorter than Bly's journey after he got set adrift near Tahiti and wound up in uh, in Kupang, West Timor, in the same place. It wasn't so much shorter than his journey, um, and his is the longest open boat journey in the world. So the fact that they did this with 
a few convicts rather than trained mariners was to me just incredible. It's, um, it's just amazing. I really wanted to learn more about the, the maritime aspect of it as well. You do wonder if, you know, some of them maybe had had some experience, but regardless, it's out on the open water. It's it. It mm. truly does seem amazing. Um, Meg Keneally, thank you so much uh, for this book. Uh, it really does show you why fiction holds such an important place in our understanding of history um, because it allows you to sort of go places that the historian can't, like the, the minds of characters that, that lived in yeah. the time. That, that's true. However, we, we do still need the still need the historians for sure. Um, I know there's been a debate in the past about you know the role of historical fiction versus the role of the historian. Um, I'm hoping to sort of illuminate and entertain and, and engage people. And a historian uh, is, is 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 you know what historians do is scholarship. And I couldn't do what I do without them doing what they do. And they're quite interested as well in the way people thought and felt too. So, yeah, so they, they, we, we definitely need them. <laughs> I do anyway. Well, um, Meg Keneally, thank you so much uh, for talking to me on Backstory today and congratulations thank on you. your first solo epic. I'm hoping it's the first of many. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, I... Uh, just talking to Meg Keneally, the author of Fled, uh, an incredible epic uh, that is drawn heavily from the life of escapee convict Mary Bryant. Uh, it is uh, definitely one of uh, the books that you should get your hands on if you are a historical fiction devotee. This has everything you could possibly want in such an epic. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, my earlier guest, Nicola Redhouse, for uh, coming in and chatting about her book, Unlike the Heart, uh, which is out now through UQP. Three, triple, ah. You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel Cranenberg, and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show, Wednesdays at 12 on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website, or subscribe to this podcast in your favourite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.